This message was recorded during a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Um, as you turn there, let me give you a, a quick little snapshot of what's going on. Peter, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ, meaning he's an eyewitness of all the events that occurred in the life of Jesus' Jesus's life, death, resurrection, ascension. He was one of the 12 disciples of Christ. He was sent, which is what the word apostle means. He was a sent one to proclaim the gospel, the good news that they had seen, heard, and been personally changed by. Peter's writing to Christians, or what he would call them as elect exiles, in the scattering of Christians. And um, there's a lot behind what that, those two words, elect exiles, mean, but these are Christians, some formerly Jewish, but many who are Gentiles facing the reality of living ex- exiles, meaning they realize the time and place in which they live is not ultimately their home, yet they are not just any type of exiles. They are elect, meaning they have been called by God for a specific purpose to be his people. And while that's an incredible calling, it comes with a cost. So Peter, he's writing to them to encourage their faith, confidence, and hope that they have received through the gospel that was proclaimed to them. So these first 12 verses of the letter, they're all focused on the blessings of being a Christian, um, the blessing of being an, ele- an elect exile in this world, um, the worth and the wonder of following and knowing and having your identity in Christ. So this morning, we have the privilege to look at and consider these last few verses, verses 10 through 12. And I would encourage you, even this, this is actually a very appropriate text to look at during Advent, because we're going we're gonna to look at and consider uh, what the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. So it's this idea of what was going on. What has God been doing through salvation, in salvation, and the salvation of his people? And, and what Peter is doing here is that he is taking these Christians who are in exile, and that he is pointing them back. And to remember, hey, this is where all this began. This is how all this salvation came to fruition. And so this is, this is where all this, this is why all this matters. So, so let's read this together. If you want to look with me, I'll read it. We're going to look at 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12. There's outlines on the back if you need it. Um, Concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that you would help us as we look at this text, open our hearts to behold the wondrous things of your word. I pray this would be a moment during this season of Advent, this season where we remember your first coming, that, um, that it, would, it would be a stabilizing truth for us, that if our hearts are discouraged, if we are walking through hardship, if we are um, just anxious about this season, Lord, if we are discouraged with sin, I pray that this text would be um, an encouragement to our souls, our faith, our confidence in the salvation that you have secured for us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. So one characteristic trait of, good, of a good writer 
is that they assume, they assume their readers will, not, will always remember the plot to their story. So they, they don't think, okay, the reader is going to read this plot one time, and then they got it. They're, no, they assume they're going to forget it. They assume that the reader will eventually forget, not be as clear. They will forget, wait, what is happening? What's going on here? What's going on with the story? Who are these characters? Why is this character responding this way? Um, so what they do, writers will summarize. They will, they will take moments in the story to summarize the main storyline of that story. And so they want to seek to bring the reader back to the main thing. So what, what is the story really about? What is the meaning behind it? What are these characters in the story meaning? What are they doing? Why are they responding the way that they are? And so here's the main goal of the story. Here's where we're headed. Here's why all this still matters. The writer, a skilled writer, will summarize and bring the reader back into that. And so this, why, why do this? Well, it helps ground the reader. It helps ground the reader in the story. It orients us, and it helps us get a sense of where we are. And so good writers will, will seek to do that. And so the Bible, being the world's greatest story ever written, it's peppered with these plot summaries throughout it. It's peppered with these reminders where the author gives a helicopter view. At times, we're in the weeds, and we're like, okay, what... We're in the weeds of the story and the specific details and people at play and what's going on. But at times, this helicopter view, the rider, God himself, will take, will lift us up and say, hey, here is what's going on in the big picture of what I am doing. And that helps us. It reminds us of, okay, there is something bigger that is going on than just this specific thing. And it helps locate us where we are in God's story as we read the Bible. And as we remember where we are in God's story, it helps gives us a firm foundation to stand on. I think that's the, one of the helpful things with Advent is if you, as you're reading through and going through life, it's so easy to forget what's most important. Even this is not just for Advent, but daily. So easy. We need to reorient our hearts. We need to reorient, okay, life isn't just specifically about this one specific thing that's going on, but there's more that's going on. There's more that's taking place. And so as we, as we dive into God's word and we remember the big picture, it helps us. And so I'm hoping that as we, as we remember this text, as we look at this text, and as, if you remember the background, these aren't, these aren't people who have their Christmas trees up and are sitting by the fire and they're warm and they're cozy and they're just hanging out. No, these are elect exiles. These are people who have lost their home. These are people who have been kicked out. These are people who are who have been said, hey, we don't want you in here in this city. And so they are actually suffering and they are being, per, being persecuted for their faith. Yet, even for them, there can be joy. Even for them, they can be confident that God has chosen them and loved them and are using them and even their circumstances for his purpose. So it's easy to live with tunnel vision, isn't it? Easy to, all we think about is our to-do list. What is on the news, social media, focus on present trials. We can be thinking about, okay, I got a couple weeks till Christmas and I haven't started my Christmas shopping yet. How am I go to Turkey Creek and do all my shopping and get all these gifts or whatever it might be? Oh, we have family coming and we haven't been together in so long and how is that going to go? Or, um, you know, there are all these things that just are after our hearts and our minds and our attention. And we can just go down that path. And as we go down that path, what do we miss? We miss everything else that God is doing. We miss everything else about the bigger picture of, no, 
God is at work. This is who he is. This is what he's done. This is what he's doing. So I can live presently in these circumstances, aware of all that God has done and is doing and will do. And so that's what Peter wants us to do. He wants us to take a step back and just consider, wow, consider the salvation that God has accomplished in and through Christ. So let's, let's notice where he begins in verse 10. He says, concerning this salvation. So what is this salvation? Well, if you look at verse 9, he writes, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so it's a salvation of their souls. It's about receiving and trusting Christ for the salvation, for the forgiveness of their sins. This salvation that began in eternity past, as Peter reminds us that we are elect exiles, that we were chosen by him. This wasn't just an, uh, a needed response by God that caught him off guard, but God said, no, before the foundation of the world, I am going to save a people. I'm going to save you, and I'm going to do this through sending my own son. And, and this, this, this reality is going to stabilize you and help you as you go through life. And so, so why does Peter keep hitting on this salvation? Well, he wants us to live with a deep sense of joy, a deep sense of gratitude, a deep sense of privilege. So as you look at this past week, even, as you look at this past week, have you been grateful? Have you been, have you been grateful for what God is doing in your life? Have you thought about all that he's accomplished? Have you, do you have a sense of joy or do you have more of a sense of just this anxiety? Do you have a sense of just like, oh, another week, oh, another day? How am I going to get through this? What is what is on my plate? Oh, I have all, it's just grumbling and complaining. Or can you think about it and remember, okay, I have a God who has loved me and set his love on me. And he has some, he has purpose for me today to live for him. No matter what comes, I can trust him and live faithfully unto him. And that will give me joy as I fight for it by grace. And so this is where we can always return. We can always return to the gospel. We can always return. I don't care if this is your first time really considering the advent of Christ, the first advent of Christ, or if you've been doing this for decades. I had a professor, he described the gospel this way. He said, the gospel is like an ocean, shallow enough at the edge that even children can play and immerse themselves in it, but so deep in some parts that no person has ever seen its depth. And that's really what we're talking about here. We're talking about a salvation that even children can play and understand in, and or there's depths to it where no person has ever seen, no person has ever gone to. And so that's what Peter's doing. He's wanting to bring us into this salvation. So one thing, important thing to notice is that in the first 12 verses of this text uh, of First Peter, it's all indicative. There's no imperative statements. There's nothing about what we need to do. It is all about what God has done. And so he wants, God wants to submit, submit our confidence and joy in what he has done and securing our salvation in Jesus Christ. And isn't that something we need during the season? We need our feet to be just standing firm and remembering. And okay, we can say, yes, Christ has come. Yes, Christ is Lord. Yes, Jesus was born. But why? Why? Why was he born? How did he come? Why did he come the way he came? What does it mean that the prophets promised, the prophets prophesied, and they were searching and inquiring? What were they having to say? Why, did it, why does it matter that Jesus came the way he did? What does, this ma- what does it mean that angels long to observe this salvation? You see, all these things are, are connected with 
this advent, this coming of Christ, this reality that God has made a way for us to know him. And so I think what the Lord wants us to, to have in our hearts this morning to take effect is he wants us to be freshly amazed at the greatness of our salvation. So four reasons Peter gives us. First one, the prophets search for it. Have you ever thought about where you're from? Do you know your lineage? Have you ever gone on to Ancestry.com or asked a grandparent or someone about, hey, tell me more about our family. Where are we from? What was, tell me more about grandma and grandpa. Where did they come from? Where is their family from? How did we get, how did our family get to America? Well, I, I remember sitting and listening. My grandfather, he went on a kick for like five or six years of searching and looking for um, where our family was from. And he just had boxes and notebooks of just files and birth certificates and pictures and all this record of his family and how they got to America and where they were. And I can just remember when I would sit with him and he would bring out the notebook, I would just cringe. I'd be like, oh no, here we go. It's going to be 10 minutes of listening about where we were from. And, but my grandfather, he, he really cared about where his, his family was from. He cared about history. He cared about what, what had brought him to his present circumstances. And at the time, I, I, I could care less. I didn't really even appreciate all this work that he had done. But he had, he, had put in, he had put in this work so that he could know about where he was from. He cared about his history. And I think we can struggle with this today as a society. As Christian, there is a rich history. Do you know the rich history of Christianity? Do you understand how, where all this began and how we got to where we are today? There is an incredible history for us. There's an incredible lineage of people and stories and accounts and wars and battles. There's, there's all these things that take place. And, it's, a, and it's, it's not just kind of this, oh, this is fake history. No, this is real history that happened. This is that happened in space and time. And God, through his sovereign and providential hand, he was guiding and shaping history so that he could accomplish his purpose, not only big picture wise, but in your life specifically, in your life. And so we have the opportunity as Christians. He's given us his word so that we can go to this book and we can read about, okay, this is part of your family history. This is what it means to be part of the people of God. So let's look at verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. 11, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted that the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. So here's what he's saying. The prophets, as they are very accurately and, as they very accurately and with specificity predicted exactly how God would provide the salvation that you and I so desperately need. And so these prophets were guided by the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, whose main role in the Old Testament was for the prophets was their prediction of the coming of Christ. They were messengers. They were the mouthpiece of God to speak to the people of Israel. And God gave them prophecies, pr predictions of who the Messiah would be. At times, they didn't even understand that what they were saying was going to be fulfilled in the coming of Christ. These men were raised by, up by God they were directed to write an incredible and unbelievable account of this redemption. But they didn't fully understand what they were writing. So not only was the Old Testament written with our days in mind, but the very events that were written about were sovereignly orchestrated by God. So 
Let's look, think, think of these texts. Some we've already read, but they point to Jesus about his life and death. So this is from the Old Testament. This is Christ came to Isaiah 700 years before the incarnation. He, he wrote this through the Holy Spirit, Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that made us whole. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on us the iniquity of us all. So who would have thought that God's answer for the human dilemma, sin, would not be a set of instructions, would not be a set of techniques, would not even be a certain set of theology or philosophy. It would be himself. God has given us himself. D.A. Carson writes, this is in your outline, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death. And he sent us a savior. And Jesus came. So it is amazing to think about that Christ left the glories of eternity, almighty, holy God, creator, sovereign, willing to subject himself to the hardships of life in a fallen world. He was held to his mother's chest. He he experienced hunger, temptation, human rejection, injustice, torture. And he was not only willing to, to subject himself to this, but also willing to die. But yet this is what the prophets talked about. They prophesied about they said that this is the one who is going to come but they said the christ would not only suffer but there would also be this glories that would follow and yeah that means the glory of the resurrection the glory of the ascension it means the glory of this explosion of the gospel around us so peter he's looking at isaiah and attributing the authorship to the spirit of christ to the holy spirit and this is where the spirit of god is has given us god's word in the scriptures. So the Spirit carried along human authors, Peter himself included, in such a way that we are able to get not only a trustworthy history, but an inerrant history, a a history that is true and right and relevant still today to our lives. So I would encourage you, one thing I would encourage you with is read the Bible, read all of the Bible. Yes, even read the Old Testament and think about as you read through it, how does this point to Christ? How does, how, how, how does Christ fulfill this promise or this text? And yes, even in Leviticus, even in Leviticus, we can see and understand that God was doing a work in and through Christ. Mark Dever, he has two books that are sermons that he preached on every book of the Bible. The Old Testament he called Promises Made, and the New Testament one is called Promises Kept. And I think that's a great way to capture what the Old Testament and New Testament are. The the Old Testament are promises made by God. The New Testament are his promises that he kept, that he fulfilled. So God is showing that he keeps his promises. Why does it cover some 2,000 years of history? Well, God's promises are fulfilled at different times and for different reasons, all according to his perfect will. Waiting is hard. 
But waiting does not mean that God has not done it, that he's not active, that he's not at work. At work. And so the prophets, they searched. They inquired about the scriptures. They were like, okay, who is this one? Who is this one that is going to come? And they were looking. They were, they were eager to see, is this the Messiah? Is the one that, that, that the Lord has revealed to us? Is he going to come in our time? So they, they thought about this. They, they weren't. It's easy to think the prophets were kind of just stowed away in some very nice room and they were like in this trance-like state and God just kind of took them somewhere and they didn't know what they were doing. No, that's not how it is at all. The word inquired that Peter uses here, it usually was in reference to searching a tent, a house, a country. So you're looking for a person, a thing. So they were looking for this promised one. So they, were, they would receive these revelations, these, these message for the people and they would write them and communicate them, but then they were looking. So they were saying, where is this one? Where is this one going to come from? Who is this one going to be? And so what are they looking for? Well, they would have studied the earlier parts of the Bible. So Isaiah would have read the Psalms of David. They would have studied what God had already revealed, seeking to see what the Lord was going to do. Who is this promised king that's going to sit on the throne forever? They would have read the history of Israel, the words of Moses. So they would be looking at and trying to find who is this one that the Bible, that these writers, that the scriptures keep talking about, that now we have this truth that one is going to come. And I think all that to say that Christianity, as Christians, we care about truth. So it's good for us to be aware that even as they search to understand their prophecies, this was no easy task. Listen to this from Daniel. From Daniel 7. My spirit, so this is as he's receiving visions and prophecies and understanding from God. He said, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. Daniel 10, when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. And I said to him who stood before me, O Lord, by reason of the visions, pains have come upon me. And I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me and no breath is left in me. So this was the experience of the prophets. They were overwhelmed. They were overwhelmed with what they were seeing. At times it was so much for them that they had to ask and plead for the Lord to help them because they could not take it in. They were often physically impaired to the nature of their work. And so Peter's first readers would have been deeply humbled. This is, this, is what, this is what all took place for us and for Peter's readers to have what we have in the Bible. This is all that took place. So just think about that. The Bible just didn't happen. One just kind of, whoop, oh, we got it. No, it was inquired. Revelations from God were brought to men and written down and searched and inquired, and it was preserved. And we have this written account over thousands of years and that we have now that is true and reliable has, stand, has stood the test of time. They would have been deeply humbled by this, out, this reality of not only what God is doing today, but what God has done in the past. So as we read about his, his pa the, the past faithfulness of God and what he's done throughout history, it should give us faith for today that God is the same God that was at work then is still at work today the same God that promised to do all these things have been fulfilled in Christ he keeps his promises he is a faithful God 
And so Peter, he transitions from the role of the prophets in salvation history to those who preach the good news today. So it's proclaimed as good news today. It was right, verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So recall in verse 10, very important characteristic of this good news. It is the good news of God's grace. So the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. Brian Chappell says, grace is not some abstract doctrine or theological construct. It's not just some idea. Grace comes as Christ does. Grace is as personal as he is. In fact, Christ is grace. The unmerited favor of God is what Jesus is about, but it is also who he is. We should thus see grace as a personal action by a personal God who saved us from our helpless condition out of pure love. So the gospel does not come to you asking something of you. It comes in the form of grace. I think that's important. So when God comes to you, he doesn't say, okay, for this, for this to work, you do this, you do, this you, you do these X, Y, and Z, and then this relationship will start. He, that's not how God works. God comes and he says, okay, I'm going to begin this by saying, okay, this is what I have done to make this relationship happen. This is what I have accomplished to make this. And so now I'm going to come to you in my son and say, you, I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to make you my child. I'm going to make you my son, my daughter. And now you're part of my family. And now we're going to function like a family. I'm going to be your savior, your Lord, your father in heaven. And now you get to live under my righteous good hand and live not for yourself, but for me, which will be better for you. And, and so that is the life we get to live. And so the gospel, this gospel they, uh, that they have proclaimed has turned the world upside down. The gospel has outlived every empire. Think about that. Think about what, how the gospel has been sustained in and through history. And when we think about it, it's even about this, even from a practical, practical perspective, it's astonishing. So if you were to look at Jesus, think about this, how he came his parents, they were from, they were no one. Nobody knew of them. Jesus was born in the lowliest of states. He came unlike anyone would have ever considered. He grew up poor to be a carpenter from Nazareth. And then he has this little motley crew against the entire Roman Empire. Think about that. One of the greatest empires ever, the Roman Empire. And Jesus had these little motley crew that he was with. So who would you vote on? If you were looking at Jesus and his disciples in the Roman Empire, who was going to be still relevant today? Who would you pick? Who would you see? Who would you think was going to make? Who was going to last? Peter saw Jesus. Peter heard his teaching. Peter saw the risen Christ. He saw the empty tomb. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And just as he penned this letter to these elect exiles, he tells us today the gospel is still good news. It is still good news. It can still be trusted. Christ truly came. He truly came, guys. This is, this is a reality. It's a life-changing reality. This is, this is something where Peter, he was not perfect either. Peter was the one who denied Christ, and Christ forgave him. This is, the, this is the one who was ashamed to be a follower of Christ, but Christ forgave him and gave him this grace that he speaks of. So Peter does not talk about someone as an outsider just observing this happening. It's not just one who kind of, okay, let me record this. No, he's one who experienced it firsthand. It's one that experienced and saw this grace that came to him. And he has been amazed by grace. Let's, let's jump to number three. So these angels that long to observe it. I, I love this part because I, I don't think we think about angels a lot. But they show up everywhere at Christmas, don't they? 
The, I mean, the Christmas songs, we talk about angels we have heard on high, hark the herald angels sing. All these, there's this reference to angels. And, and as you read the Christmas story, as you read about the birth of Christ, angels are all, all around it. And so this idea that the angels long to observe it, I think we begin to see their longing. We, we, we truly see in all these accounts. And so angels have stood out from the very outset and have seen, they have actually seen all of history play out. They have seen every step, every redemptive action and purpose of God they have been able to see and account for. So angels know the Bible that well, it seems. They have seen God's creation, relationships with Adam and Eve. So, so let me read some of these things for you. You see the angels, they sang during creation week. We see, we see this in Job 38, 4 through 7. They were also there the day at the fall of Adam. In fact, it was one of their very own, a cherub named Lucifer who rebelled against God, took the form of a certain serpent and tempted Adam into sin, bringing judgment on the human race. They, angels, were also there as God banished sinful Adam and Eve and the serpent from the garden. Those angels were the ones who remained obedient to their stations as guardians of the way to the tree of life. They were there in the tabernacle, the temple, their likeness woven into the furnishings, emblematically guarding the holy of holies against the defilement of sinners. There, there they stayed looking, watching, longing to see the triumph of God's grace come to pass in the birth of that Savior who would deliver His people. They were there in Bethlehem speaking to Joseph, to Mary, the shepherds. To this day they speak to us as the Holy Spirit speaks through their words in Scripture. Still they are watching to see the triumph of God's grace in us who will receive and rest in Jesus alone for salvation. And so angels have taken part. They have watched. They have been amazed as they have, have been able to get a front row seat of what God has done throughout this redemptive history. So when, when they come and they tell the shepherds, they tell them, they look them in the face and they say, hey, we bring you good news of great joy. We bring you this wonderful news that Christ the Lord is born. And, and there's just this huge choir of angels, this heavenly host that sings glory to God in the highest and, on, and he brings peace to those with whom he is pleased. And so, so there's this idea, this reality, the angels have been watching. I mean, it's just this idea. They're just like, okay, is he going to do it? Is he going to do it? Oh, I think he's doing it. Oh, I think this is going to happen. I think he's about to make this happen. I mean, the angels are at the edge of their seat and they cannot wait to see what God is going to do. But here's the amazing thing with the angels. Their joy is not in their salvation. Their joy is in our salvation. So the angels will never experience salvation like we do. The angels will never experience or know salvation the way we do. What all they are, angels truly are observers. Angels truly are ones that have stood and just watched from the outside. But we we are at the center. We are right there. We are the ones that, who have not only were created by God, but had sinned against God. And we are the ones that he sent his own son to rescue. We are the ones that Jesus was born in our likeness. We are the ones that Jesus lived the life we could never live. He died the death that we deserve. He rose from the grave and said, hey, come follow me. Put your faith in me. I'm going to begin this relationship by grace. I'm going to accomplish everything necessary for you to have fellowship with me. And guess what? You get to experience this fellowship for eternity. And so the angels are just stepping back and they're watching. 
And all the angels, all they can do is just praise God. Glory to God in the highest. On peace, He is pleased. He's bringing this peace and He is pleased with man. He's doing all these things, but for other people, not for them. So their joy is their joy in what God is doing in us. So I just say that to say, don't we have a lot to learn from the angels? Are, are, you, are you filled with that kind of joy? Are you, are you ready and eager this morning as we begin the singing? We're going to sing angels we have heard on high. And we're, and we're going to hear, do you hear their song? And yes, their song is true and it's good. And what they have announced is true. But their announcement is purely from an, an observer's place. But what they are announcing is what God has done for and in our lives. And so we should sing. We should be those that sing even louder than the angels. Luke 15, 10 says, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So if you have repented from your sin, if you have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, when that day happened, know this, the angels knew about it and they rejoiced. The angels knew what was taking place. In the New Testament, the church is called the Bride of Christ. Uh, if you've ever been to a wedding, one of the highlights is seeing the bride enter, make their way to her groom, marvel. You just marvel at the beauty, the joy, the love. Um, you just see this happening between these two. Well, we, the church, are the Bride of Christ. We have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and we have been united to Christ by faith. And the angels, what they do is they, they love to see this take place. This never grows old. Never grows old. I'm sure they're just amazed that they see the church as the church is built and the bride of Christ as being made and accomplished and beautiful. What the angels are doing is they're just watching and amazed at the beauty of this moment. They never grow tired at seeing all that God has done in and through his people. And so let's marvel. Let's, let's have the type of joy that the angels have in our salvation. And then number four, God was behind it all. God was behind it all, guys. That, that a sovereign God, he was harnessing the forces of nature. He was controlling the events of human history. He was Lord over every situation, every location, every circumstance for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And nothing out, happened outside his will. All of it was controlled by him so that Jesus would come because God had a plan for us. And so I end with this illustration. It's one thing. So... The, the question for us is, have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Do you know what that means? Do you understand? Do you, you can't just force, you can't just fake this true joy that the angels had. That, a way to think about it. So it's one thing to read the recipe for cinnamon rolls. This is a family favorite for us. We love cinnamon rolls during Christmas. I might, I might eat a little, I may eat too many during this season, but it's one thing to see how all the ingredients come together. You can watch it. You, can, you need the right amount of sugar, flour, butter, plenty of butter, plenty of cinnamon, lots of sugar. You let the dough rise. You got to rise for the proper time. You got to think about the baking temperature. You got to cut it up. You got to do all these things. You come, you come in and you could even hear it being made. You could smell the rich aroma, the cinnamon, the sugar, all this. You could walk in. You can just see the rich and creamy flavor of the icing. And so the need that you feel always to have one more. Yet, it's one thing to read. It's one thing to read the recipe. It's one thing to say, wow, this sounds really good. It's a whole other thing to taste one. It's one thing to read about how cinnamon rolls are made. It's, it's one thing to read about how these things are made. It's a whole other thing to say, I want to taste an actual cinnamon roll. 
I want to actually taste and enjoy. I want to taste and enjoy the goodness of that. So what's the point of that? Well, it's one thing to read about all that God has done through the Bible. It's one thing to know all the facts. It's a whole other thing to taste and see that the Lord is good. Well, it's a whole other thing to take hold and to taste and trust and believe and enjoy God for who he is and what he's done. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. It turns the recipe of Christ's individual love for you into actual taste. It helps you to taste it, and the Spirit does this. And that's why we, we love to hear and preach the gospel, and this is what God does in our lives. He loves to do this. So I hope that as we continue in this Christmas season, that our hearts are continually filled with wonder, with joy, and with peace. And that we, and this is, and I'll end with this quote, that we would, would hear these words from J.C. Ryle and it would be true of our life. Faith never rests so calmly and peacefully as when it lays its head on the pillow of God's omnipotence. God has done this. He is the one who has accomplished all this. He has accomplished this salvation, and it is wondrous in our eyes. Let's pray. So, Lord, I do pray for everyone here. I pray you would give them great wonder and joy in all that you have accomplished. I pray, Lord, for anyone who does not know you here, whose heart may be hardened, who's, um, who, who may even um, despise and, and not enjoy or not understand. Lord, I pray you would give the gift of understanding I pray through your spirit you would soften hearts and that you would bring life, Lord. I pray that we would all taste and see that you are good. Even this season, Lord, I pray that, that the true understanding and purpose of this time, Lord, there would just be a, a greater sense, a joy, similar to what the angels have, Lord, except personally in our lives, Lord. We would rejoice in all that you have done. And we praise you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for coming. Appreciate you guys. You've been listening to a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Cornerstone U exists to have our minds renewed by the Word of God, to see who God is, and to live in light of His Word and Gospel. To find out more about previous Cornerstone U classes, visit us on the web at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com forward slash cornerstone U.